Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 250. Nice. Nice. <laughs> That's a We're lot. We're super proud of how many episodes we've done. I am. It's a lot of time I've been sitting in this chair. How many hours? Hundreds of hours of us. One of you should calculate how many hours of content of just Josh and I talking. I wonder how many hours of content of me on the internet there is. It's got to be thousands. We could probably sit and watch our content for like a whole month straight, 24 (laughs) Probably longer than that. It's probably a year's worth. Damn. Maybe not. I have no concept of time. Anyway, today... We are going to be talking about a very, very interesting case that has been just Com- completely yeah. boshed, in my opinion, yeah. investigation wise, but one that absolutely needs attention because I think mm-hmm. it is a very solvable case. I do too. That I'm honestly shocked hasn't gotten further. But are we shocked? Has, but at the same time, not really all that shocked. We were saying that last night. Like we were actually getting mad while we were. Yeah, it, it's, it sucks because. I feel like sometimes we sound like police haters on here and like we were just like against the police. I know some people out there think that about us, like that we're always like hating on the police. But it's you got to also remember that there's police that go out and respond to, you know, 911 calls. But mm-hmm. then there's like detectives and investigators who are supposed to be professionals and are supposed to have the skill set and training to solve these very solvable cases if they know what they're doing. And what we find is that, and give a shit, yeah. And and what we found just from all the cases we've covered is that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, detectives are lacking in training, or they're just they're too busy that they don't have the adequate time to really dive into these. But like this case in particular, I'm just like, there are dots that should be connecting from the Mm -hmm. jump that just aren't, and it's one of those controversial cases where it's like. Did the person take their life or were they murdered? Mm-hmm. And there's so many of those. And I think part of the reason we end up dogging on the police so much is because oftentimes the cases that need attention are the ones where the police have failed. But of course, there are many cases where police have done an awesome job and have responded quickly, have utilized all resources and have obviously solved many, many cases, although those aren't the ones that need as much coverage. So that's why we end up always talking about these cases and josh and i were kind of discussing last night that it seems to be that there obviously there's just people who don't really care much about their profession and aren't really passionate about what they do but there's also there's too many murders for how many detectives and police there actually are to to be able to put in the adequate time that these cases need these cases need to be solved that's what it, it seems like that's the only thing i can really come to a conclusion on because so, some of this stuff seems so not easy but so attainable to be solved to have that final conclusion and this is definitely one of them um we're going to be talking about the suspicious death of patrick mullins out of bradenton florida which is actually an area that josh and i are somewhat familiar with yeah we love that area manatee county yeah we florida. have family Beautiful down there area. so we've been especially to anna maria island many times it's stunning stunning area um but this case will we will be discussing topics related to suicides. So we also wanted to give you guys that warning ahead of time. Um, I know that can be triggering to some, so definitely keep that in mind. Um, but man, I don't know if you're going to be thinking along those lines when you hear all of the evidence around this case, because the authorities went 
you know, and, and this is the other thing that bothers me is that when authorities just kind of jump to conclusions to hopefully try to wrap things up quickly mm-hmm. and rather than take their time and go through all the evidence and actually investigate the case and discern whether or not this is it's possible for this person to have taken their life or is it also possible that this person was murdered and then whoever murdered them made it look like a suicide and that's that's the hardest thing and i think when we're talking about the police as well and just from my knowledge is like a lot of the detectives learn from other detectives like that's the thing is i feel like there just needs to be more education in law enforcement like there needs to be a law enforcement university like there needs to be more training because a lot of times and in this particular case the one that was investigating patrick mullins's death was a relatively new detective so his first death investigation so if this is your first death investigation obviously you're going to be green and you're probably going to miss things and it's going to take you longer to to draw conclusions but the you family think you put in that effort if it's right. your first time and you're excited to get started with something that you're passionate about you would think but a lot of times there's other biases going on and they're listening to their superiors and things like that yeah. but it's just unfortunate for the family because when something tragic like this happens to a loved one you're putting your full faith in into law enforcement to give you the best possible chance at finding out what happened to your loved one and we just see time and time again that that does not ever come to fruition like it just for so many families and it's just so unfortunate live with this those are the you know the family are the ones that are are gonna have to deal with the loss every single day and the questions that are unanswered and wishing that they because it's like you, you can do some things independently from law enforcement can hire a PI. You can kind of do your own investigation, but you don't have the legal authority to go and question people in the way that the police can to put charges on somebody or to get access to warrants and information and bank statements and phone records and things like it's a lot harder to do that when you're not officially law enforcement. So it's like, it's just, I hate that there's this fundamental breakdown in in law enforcement and in criminal investigation because I just feel like so many cases are very, very solvable if the right people with the right resources and, and knowledge and training are are at the helm, which a lot of times they are and cases get solved and even years later, they're working hard on it and they eventually break open the case and they solve it. Somebody goes to jail, but you know it could be years and years and years go by before that happens and I've seen in some of the cases that I've covered on Lights Out where had the police just done one extra little thing, they would have gotten the answers that they needed to put this person behind bars 20 plus years ago and save the family all this pain and anguish that that was completely avoidable. Or even done something, you know, fully or more thoroughly, yeah. I should say. Yeah. We're more careful about the way that they do things. Yeah. But again, it's it's a multi-layered issue and there's... A lot of reasons for why that this this happens but all the reason why we like to cover cases like this because they need to be talked about that people need to know about it because you never know there could be somebody out there who has information yeah, that could lead to say something to a credible tip that ultimately leads to somebody being charged and justice being served so all right well let's go ahead and get into this case we have a lot to go over here so let's begin by talking a little bit about patrick so patrick or Pat Lee Mullins was born 
in October of 1960 in Tallahassee, Florida to Gene Hooten Mullins and Patrick G. Mullins. He was raised in Anna Maria Island with his brothers Gray and Bert and his sisters Linda and Nancy. Pat grew up in Manatee County and lived there basically his entire life, and he and his siblings grew up on the water, and they always took boats out as kids. So naturally, Pat grew to be a skilled boater himself, and he loved being in his home, the water. Pat graduated from Manatee High School and then later the University of Florida. He was a member of the invitation-only Phi Kappa Phi, which is one of the most prestigious honor societies in the country. So he was clearly a really smart and talented person. Not only that, but he also served in the U.S. National Guard as a sergeant for six years. And in 1992, in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew, he assisted survivors in Dade County. Pat also played the trumpet, and he was a jazz lover. So naturally, he adored Louis Armstrong. His favorite author was the Scottish novelist, Alastair MacLean. While he was studying at the University of Florida in the late 70s or early 80s, Pat met a fellow student from Sarasota named Leslie John, who went by Jill. The two had actually been introduced by Gray, Pat's brother. His girlfriend was roommates with Jill at the time. So the two started dating and eventually they got married in 1983 and they spent their honeymoon in Miami and the Florida Keys. Later, they had their oldest son, Mason, and their youngest son, Miles. The couple eventually moved to Bradenton, Florida, a town in the Tampa Bay area. They purchased a house on the river, which was perfect for Pat, who always loved boating and fishing. Pat was a fourth grade teacher and an amazing teacher, it sounds like. And for over two decades, he worked at two different elementary schools in Manatee County. And he was beloved by students, parents, other teachers, and other staff members. And he was a seriously hardworking guy but he was still an easy person to get along with. And you could really just tell that teaching was a joy for him. He was a passionate educator who loved seeing his students succeed. And this is a really cool fact about Pat. He actually was nominated for Teacher of the Year, the award, several times, but he never actually went through with the nomination process. And that's because he was so passionate about ensuring that his students got the best education possible that he felt like the award process would take time and energy away from his teaching, which I think is remarkable. Most people would take that opportunity. And teachers in Manatee County at the time did not have contracts. So in solidarity, Pat declined the nomination. He even wrote a letter to the editor in the local paper about the issue. So as you can tell, Pat was a very salt-of-the-earth type of guy. Jill and Pat actually went back to school and earned their master's degrees in the Library of Science and then became librarians. Pat started working as a librarian at Palomino High School, while Jill began working at Lakewood Ranch High School, and he quickly became just as beloved by his students as he was at his previous schools. He really cared about his students, and Pat was the kind of teacher who acted as a father figure for kids who needed it. He would stay after school, let out sometimes until 6 or 7 p.m., just to keep the lights on for students staying late. He'd even pay for students' ACT exam fees for them. One student remembered that Pat kept her motivated when she thought she wasn't going to get the college scholarship money she needed, and she had given up hope, but Pat kept encouraging her, and when she'd found out that she'd gotten the scholarship, he literally jumped in the air and celebrated. He was definitely a rule follower, and he wanted his students to follow the rules too. Some of them fondly remember hearing Pat's announcer-like voice on the library loudspeaker saying, there is no food or drink allowed in the library, or only one person per computer. His biggest vice was wanting to be the best school librarian 
he could possibly be. In addition to being a great educator, Pat was also an experienced boater. He loved to fish in the Braden River, and he was skilled at engine repair. As a hobby, Pat collected and restored old Evan Rude boat motors, and he hoped that once he retired, he could open up his own little repair shop with his brother, Gray. He was a very handy kind of guy. In his free time, he would actually rehab an old army jeep with his sons and take it off-roading. Pat's boat was a 16-foot stump knocker, and as a kid, he'd always wanted to have a stump knocker. The brand was a flat-bottom boat, which was perfect for the shallow Braden River. So at this time in his life, work was good, family was good, life was good, and it was as idyllic as you can imagine. With Pat and his natural element, he was working, doing what he loved, and coming home to fish on the tranquil Braden River. And Pat was soon to retire. That June would be he and Jill's 30th wedding anniversary, and he was planning to get a hotel booked in Fort Myers to celebrate. And now that his kids were adults, he was excited to be a grandpa one day. He was also a member of the Deferred Retirement Option Program, or DROP. And as part of this program, once he ended his library career, he'd be collecting more than $150,000. And according to Jill, a week before Pat disappeared, he started to suffer from severe headaches. He also became irritable, which wasn't like him. Later, Jill ended up talking to a medical professional who believes that these headaches may have been due to extreme stress. And so Jill wondered if maybe Patrick had found out about something and he didn't know what to do with that information. And maybe that something led to the events we're about to lay out. Earlier on January 27, 2013, Patrick went out to a farm store in Bradenton and bought a few things, including a drain valve for an air conditioner and some cheap welding goggles for later. He wouldn't have to use them that day or for any specific project yet. He just wanted to have them on hand. He also bought a boat fuel filter for his son's boat. He installed it that day. Jill was going to be in Sarasota that day visiting her aunt, and she didn't know what Pat's plans were. But she would be back later to give some old furniture to a coworker. Pat kissed his wife goodbye and said he'd help her with the furniture later that day. And with that, she was off. Later that Sunday afternoon, Pat took his stump knocker out for a quick engine check. Two of his neighbors reported seeing him get on his boat alone at 3.30 p.m. A local store owner reported seeing Pat in their store alone sometime between 2 and 4 p.m. That evening when Jill came home around 6 or 7 p.m., she noticed that Pat wasn't there. But she wasn't too alarmed at first. She thought wherever he was, he'd be back soon. Sundays were work nights for them, so they'd start winding down around 7 to get ready for the next school day. Now, Pat's truck was still in the driveway, and when Jill looked around the house, he wasn't there. So she figured maybe he went to a neighbor's house for a bit, and she tried calling his phone, but didn't get an answer. But this also wasn't too weird to her because Patrick didn't like carrying around his phone on him, and his phone was later found in his truck. But it got later and later and darker, and there was still no sign of Pat. So Jill started to worry when she saw that the stump knocker was not there. His absence got so concerning to her that she called her son, Miles, who was a civil engineering student at the University of South Florida at the time. And Miles could tell from his mother's voice that something was wrong. This didn't sound like his father had just stepped out for a bit. Something was off. So he immediately drove down from Tampa to see what was going on. Meanwhile, Jill ended up calling 911. Pat never took his boat out after dark. He was careful, responsible, and he always went out with life jackets. He was also a strong swimmer, so Jill just couldn't understand why he hadn't made it home. Obviously, after Jill called 911, the police got involved in the search for 
Patrick to figure out if they could, you know, the first thing that they thought was that maybe his boat had broken down and yeah, on this river, there's all these little islands. Like there could be areas where you could get off and, and walk around potentially. I think it's more so like mangrove looking things, but mm-hmm. it's possible that maybe his boat just broke down. And so they sent police out there. They had helicopters flying over the river. And it's not just one straight shot, this river. It's, no, it's multiple. No, if you've ever been to and- Florida, it's like, there's like one, Very there's like a main up. river that feeds into another, another river that then feeds into the bay mm-hmm. or the Gulf. And his boat was only meant for the river. There's no reason why he should go out any farther than the river. And he never did. So they figured he was probably just broken down somewhere and then he needed to find him. So I believe his son, Miles, even went out that night with a few others to search those little inlets because there's a ton of them to see if he was, was out there. And they, and they were, had a helicopter too, shining a light down. Right, the police were were flying helicopters boat. and stuff, hoping to to locate Patrick. But they found absolutely nothing that night. But then the next day, the Coast Guard actually found Patrick's stump knocker. The boat was found nine miles offshore, floating in the middle of the Gulf, and Patrick was not inside. There were no signs of a struggle and nothing significant missing besides the twenty-five pound anchor. They also noticed that there was no gas in the boat and the engine had been set to idle neutral and was completely drained. So it's believed that the engine was left to run out. So if Pat had put the boat in idle and left it running, he must not have planned on making a long stop. The Coast Guard believed that the boat drifted to the location they found it in from somewhere in the lower Tampa Bay. Now that the Coast Guard had found his boat, they were actually able to use wind data and tide information from the previous night to figure out and kind of guesstimate where the boat may have drifted from. Because obviously it's just out there hanging out by itself. Pat's nowhere near the boat. So it's likely, especially since the engine was found in idle, that it had just naturally drifted with the tide and and the waves. So they were able to kind of backtrack and figure out where they should continue looking based on where the boat drifted from. So the Coast Guard continued to search. Pat was due at school to work that day, but the school day ended and he hadn't shown up there or at his house or anywhere else in the area. Days went on and Pat wasn't discovered. By this point, there was a little chance of finding Patrick alive, but the family needed answers. Miles, Pat's son, joined the Marine search for his dad, and the Red Cross even acted to have Mason get home from Afghanistan, where he was serving in the military. Both friends and strangers alike came together to support the Mullins family and assist with the search. The U.S. Coast Guard tirelessly searched for Pat. People in the community were aware of his disappearance, because obviously it was on the local news and everything, and boaters kept an eye out for any sign of him. The search was halted on January 30th after the area was canvassed thoroughly. So on February 5th, 2013, Jeffrey Page, a fishing boat captain and saltwater fishing guide, was out on one of his charter boats with some clients. They were on their way from a charter moving through the Manatee River, approaching Emerson Point, when one of the clients pointed towards something in the water. He asked the captain what the object was. Jeffrey thought it was a body, just breaking over the river's surface. And when they got closer, Jeffrey thought it looked like it belonged to the missing teacher that he had heard about. The body was clean, fully clothed, and nothing looked out of place, except for a missing shoe. His wallet was still inside his pocket, and his watch was still on his wrist. His body had been tightly wrapped in rope. It was looped around his waist, chest, and legs, and tied into a tight knot, The rope was actually the boat's anchor line, and Jeffrey could see that it was attached to a tiny anchor that sat about 
four to six feet below the water's surface. He didn't flip the body over, but the water was very clear and he couldn't see a discernible face below the surface. He described it as, and this is graphic, just a heads up, no nose, no face, and that it was like spaghetti, which is very disturbing to think about. But obviously, his body had decomposed a lot being in the hot water. Now, what's interesting is that Jeffrey uh, also had mentioned that, quote, it certainly wasn't like he was tangled in the rope. It was perfectly lassoed around his chest. The whole back of his skull, his cheeks, and face were gone. There was no blood. And he also mentioned that it was the third body that he had found in his 52 years on Earth, which I thought was wow, yeah. really bizarre. What like, are the chances? Most people never come across a body, much less three. Three times. Well, when you're out on the water as much as he is, I mean. Maybe. But still, that seems pretty high. So obviously, Jeffrey immediately called the Florida Marine Patrol, and within 40 minutes, an agent arrived at the scene. And sadly, this body was confirmed to belong to Pat, and his family were given the heartbreaking news that day. Pat's body was found far out in the bay, much further from where his boat was. It was a spot pretty far from his house, too. And he never took his stump knocker into the bay to begin with. So things were already starting to look suspicious. An autopsy was performed, and according to medical examiners, the body was moderately decomposed in a state consistent with being in the water for eight or nine days. But they couldn't narrow down his date of death to a specific day. The body had extensive head trauma. There were six separate exit defects on the left side of the skull and a larger defect on the right side. This trauma was consistent with a shotgun blast, specifically with buckshot, to the right side of Pat's head. The bullet entered from the right side, traveled slightly upward and backward, and exited the left side of the skull. Which, for those that don't know what buckshot rounds are, they contain 8 to 10 marble-sized pellets, and they're used for hunting, typically. The shot was determined to be fired from close range, about a few inches from Pat's head. Which this is interesting because a self-inflicted gunshot wound is usually a contact shot with the muzzle of the gun placed against the head. The medical examiners listed Pat's cause of death as a shotgun wound to the head. They could not tell if the manner of death was suicide or homicide though, so they listed it as undetermined. Unable to reasonably exclude self-inflicted or inflicted injury, basically they can't rule out either option. So later on, forensic anthropologists at the University of Florida pieced together the framework of Pat's skull. And what's interesting about this is they couldn't rule out Patrick being shot more than once. They say that a single shotgun blast could reasonably explain the wound, but since pieces of the skull are missing, they can't rule out Pat also having been shot with a small caliber pistol or rifle round. But the family would not learn about Pat's cause of death for five months. The medical examiner was the one who told them, and he was surprised that detectives hadn't already told their family. Jill said that when she went to the medical examiner's office, he told her that he strongly leaned towards suicide because someone would tie the ropes differently if it were a homicide. And Jill was shocked, but she tried to imagine the scenario that they were giving her. But she just couldn't think of anything in Pat's life that would point to suicide. He wasn't having any financial, personal, health, or marital problems. He had no known mental health issues, and he exhibited no signs of suicidal behavior before his death. By all accounts, everything was fine, and Patrick was loving life, and he was excited to retire soon. 
obviously we know that it's still possible for someone to have none of these signs and still take their own life. But obviously as a family member, it would seem very shocking when police are telling you that and it doesn't really add up. As it turns out, investigators never found any evidence that Pat was planning on taking his own life, and they never found a reasonable motive for him to end his life. But the investigators working on Pat's case still strongly believe that Pat's death was a suicide. In fact, according to Sarasota Tribune reporter Lee Williams, the Manatee County Sheriff's Office started calling Pat's death a suicide before they even pulled his body out of the water, and they tried pressuring Jill into believing that too. Lee interviewed the police about the case, and they were really trying to sell him on the idea that Pat had committed suicide. They said that for the family's sake, since this is a suicide, Lee should probably just leave the whole story alone. Investigators told the family that Pat tied himself to the anchor, sat on the side of the boat, shot himself, and then fell backwards into the water. But that theory made no sense to the family. Pat, first of all, did not own a shotgun, or any guns for that matter. There were no guns in the house, and he was never really interested in guns to begin with. And to this day, no shotgun has ever been recovered in this case. Police forensic examiners checked Pat's bank accounts, and they found no evidence that Pat purchased a shotgun or withdrew money to buy one. The only thing police found on Pat's personal or work computers was a YouTube link about determining the age of a Marlin shotgun. Interestingly, the search warrant used to seize these computers stated that the sheriff's office was investigating the crime of manslaughter. Both the police and Lee, the reporter, called up the local gun dealers, and all of them said that Pat Mullins never purchased a shotgun. They didn't even find so much as a shotgun shell connected to him. Here's Jill and some of her friends talking about their theories. But, uh, I think he was out there and he saw something he shouldn't have seen. Um, must have been pretty serious that the person would be carrying a shotgun on them and would be willing to use it. There is absolutely no way Pat Mullins would have taken his life. He had so much to live for. He was looking forward to retirement. His eldest son is in, was in his second tour in Afghanistan. As overwhelmingly sad as I am, um, there's uh, a lot of wonderful, a lot of wonderful people out there. And there's probably one very dangerous person out there. So one of the staff members at the medical examiner's office found out that as a child, Pat would sometimes climb on top of black painted buoys as a prank. So that staff member suggested in an email that Pat could have climbed on a black buoy and shot himself. In an email, this investigator actually wrote, and this is so insensitive, let's go buoy hunting with an exclamation mark. And could you imagine if we found blood or the gun? Now, obviously, this is ridiculous. Pat is a 200-pound man, not a child anymore. And to imagine that he somehow climbed on a buoy while holding a shotgun attached to a 25-pound anchor and then shot himself is just absurd. That's what's so frustrating about this case is like it is like this whole theory of he, he took his own life just makes no sense. And all the ways that they're saying that he did it is even more ridiculous and more Like they're truly improbable. grasping at straws. Yeah. Like going back to a prank he used to do as a child just bizarre so outlandish that it's like hard to believe that that's actually their thinking and that they're communicating these things over email but their family wanted dive teams with the sheriff's office to look for a shotgun near where pat was found but they didn't seem too keen on getting that done in an email from april 15th 2013 a detective division commander wrote it is more or less to appease the family since it would still be like looking for a needle in a haystack 
A sheriff's office dive team performed a water search for the first time after Pat's body was discovered on April 19th, 2013. That was 74 days after Pat was first found. And of course, nothing came up during this search. Imagine if they had searched this water closer than 74 days right? after they found him. Yep. Why would you not do that? Why would that not be one of the first things that you do? And obviously it could have drifted it could yeah, be hard absolutely. to find but your chances would be a lot better if you did it right away versus waiting 74 fucking days yeah especially because like if he like if they were trying to try to find the gun and stuff if the big shotgun you would think it's pretty heavy it's not like, flying around super quick 74 days yeah it's probably drifted a while but if you had done it immediately there's a chance you would have been able to find the gun and absolutely. that could have helped a lot especially if you dragged the bottom right yeah it just shows you how like locked into their theory they were Mm-hmm. from the beginning and that they Close were just like oh this is what happened even though we have no way to prove that it happened this way right but this is this is how it's going to go pat also left no note or anything else behind that would have indicated that he took his own life he did have a life insurance policy with the school that had no suicide clause meaning the policy wouldn't forbid payout to his family if he did in fact die by suicide but the policy amount was thirty thousand dollars and had been enforced since 1993 so this wasn't a policy he had taken out recently it had been 20 years. But the police were still insistent. They said that the fact that Pat's hands weren't tied was a clear sign that this wasn't a homicide. But this immediately and clearly made no sense. If someone shot him, why would they need to then restrain his hands? He's already dead. There were no restraints on his ankles that would be typical of a criminal trying to restrain someone alive either. And of course, he's not going to have his arms and legs free and just let some guys tie him up. The way the rope was tied indicated that the goal was to have the body sink. So it intuitively makes the most sense that his lower half and chest would be tied to keep the body connected to the anchor without coming loose after he had already been shot dead. The police also brought up the fact that Pat was found with his wallet and his watch. The point being that if this was some sort of robbery, they definitely would have at least stolen the wallet. And it turns out Pat only had eight bucks inside, which certainly would not have been enough for a robber. So why would they take the money and wallet? and risk having evidence on them. Again, Pat was found to have both socks on his feet, but was missing one of his Sperry topsetter boating shoes. And it's been theorized that maybe Pat's shoe came off during a struggle with some assailants. Some people have theorized that Pat's shoe was off because he was using his toe to pull the shotgun trigger, which is just wild. And obviously, given all circumstances, this is a bizarre and implausible theory for a number of reasons. The first, that setting up a shotgun like this and pulling the trigger with his toe would have been very difficult for Patrick. He was out at sea in a small, rickety boat where waves would be rocking back and forth constantly. It would be very hard for him to steady the shotgun while using his feet if it was moving like that. Second of all, there was no blood spray, which really ties into him pulling the trigger at all. I mean, whether with his toe or with his hand. The fact that there was not blood spray, brain matter, skull fragments found in the boat, this would be virtually impossible if he had shot himself in any way, especially if he did it with his toe. They were saying he was like sitting on the side and then he had the gun like, out here which you know shotguns are fairly long and it'd be awkward to hold it like that because most of the times i believe you'd hold it under your your chin yeah in most cases yes with the barrel making contact 
but this they were saying it was like out to the side like this he had his arm way out here like this and that's why because again the wound was on the side of the head it's it just it's the most awkward shot like it just wouldn't make any sense for somebody to do it that way plus patrick was very good with knots and the rope around his body formed a knot that patrick did not use i mean his family looked at this knot and was like no way it wasn't a knot that any boater would really use either the family was obviously very frustrated by the way police were handling the case, so they decided to try and investigate it themselves. In 2021, they brought in forensic expert Lori Baker to look at Pat's case and examine the suicide theory. Immediately, the circumstances of Pat's death sounded very odd to her, so she tried reconstructing his death in the way investigators claim it took place, and she noticed pretty quickly that the angle Pat supposedly shot himself at was very atypical of a suicide by shotgun. It would be a heavy gun and it would be hard to shoot yourself at that angle. Even the medical examiner said he had never seen anyone shoot themselves with a shotgun at the side of their head. And the skull didn't show signs that it was a contact wound like you would expect, given the weight of the gun and its long barrel. Most firearm suicides are also contact shots, but it appeared that Pat's wound was shot at close range, a few inches away, and not a contact shot. Because it's like, especially with a shotgun, you'd almost need to like, push it against yourself in order to just keep it held steady right i mean to hold it a few inches away to the side like that would be hard to do and hold it steady so that you know you don't end up missing right like mm -hmm. it'd make more sense to push it against your head and kind of like balance it that way especially at that angle so the fact that the evidence shows that it was a few inches away just really doesn't make sense and like we said before there was no blood in the boat given that kind of wound i mean buckshot to the head is going to completely i mean there's going to be blood brain matter bone fragments all over the place and there was none of that in the boat or on pat from what we could tell and there was a breeze that day that pat died so that probably would have carried blood spatter into the boat it would be almost impossible for no blood to be inside that boat so this would point to patrick being killed outside of the boat somewhere else after Pat's body was recovered, police did a luminol test on the boat, and they found no blood, no blood spatter, no brain matter, skull fragments, or really anything like that. And Lori took a look at the autopsy photos and found something really striking. The body did not look like any scavengers had touched it. It was sitting in the water for almost 10 days in Florida. It's highly likely that animals, bugs, fish would have left some sort of evidence of scavenging. Plus, the amount of blood left by a gunshot would have poured into the water. And the smell of that blood would totally draw in fish and other sea creatures, sharks looking to feed. And that's just within a few minutes of the body being in the water. Sharks can smell blood from a half to a quarter mile away. And there were plenty of sharks in those waters. There were even alligators in this area. But there was no damage to Pat's hands, his arms, nothing like that. So it just doesn't make sense. The Braden River is used by a lot of people just trying to enjoy themselves through fishing or boating, but it's also sometimes used by people with bad intentions. There's motorboat theft, illegal fishing, and drugs moving through that river. It's possible that whoever killed Pat towed the boat out to the bay and dumped the boat and the body there, and then the boat drifted out to the gulf where it was ultimately discovered. To get from Pat's house to where his body was found, the boat would have had to move past two long bridges that cross over the bay. And one of these bridges is owned by the CSX Railroad, 
and it actually has cameras that pick up any boat going under it. Investigators contacted CSX and requested the footage, but the CSX employee sent them over a corrupted file. And when investigators tried to open the file themselves, it was still corrupted and couldn't be opened. So that footage was lost and its contents are unknown. Local businesses on the water submitted their footage, but nothing was found on the tapes. But Jill Mullins has been very critical of the fact that the sheriff's office wasn't able to get the video footage from CSX. And the CSX employee they corresponded with seemed eager to get the video to them. So why wasn't it done in a timely manner? If it had been, they might have been able to spot Pat. You know, once they found where his boat was, and especially after they found Pat, it just, they could have done this so much sooner and potentially gotten the files before they're corrupted, which I'm questioning the corruption of the files. I feel like typically there's ways to fix that. So I'm wondering what happened there. It just seems like they're like, oh, can't open it. Yeah. It says it's corrupted, so... So the lead detective on this case was Daryl Davis, and he was actually a former student of Jill's, and he was, like we talked about earlier, inexperienced, and this was his first death investigation. On July 20th, Daryl actually sent Jill an email with this statement. My petition slash prayer is that you will be given that understanding slash acceptance going forward. The rest of the email referenced God and expressed condolences, which is obviously very inappropriate when you're investigating someone's death. After Dare was interviewed by the Herald Tribune in September of 2013, he called up Jill, and he was upset that she was making her concerns public. He was upset that she was making her concerns public. Isn't that unbelievable to you? It's very unprofessional. It's not about you, dude. But Jill said, I was looking for confirmation that the sheriff's office was doing their job not what God would be doing. And she didn't like the implication that accepting her husband's supposed suicide was the reasonable thing to do. So now that we've kind of established all the reasons why the suicide theory just doesn't really add up, I'm sure you're wondering whether or not there are suspects in this case. And as far as we know, this next individual we're going to talk about has never been named officially as a police suspect, but a lot of people believe that he was involved with Pat's death. Let's talk about Damon Presswood, which there's a lot of sources out there that report his last name as Cresswood, and we're not exactly sure why. So it's either Presswood or Cresswood. But Damon was a good friend of Pat's brother, Gray Mullins. Gray and Damon met sometime around 1989 or 1990 and had been friends since then. Pat and Damon weren't really close. They knew each other through Gray but they definitely knew each other. Miles knew Damon as a family friend, and he would see him at get-togethers with friends and family all the time, especially Memorial Day weekend. But Gray considered Damon to be his best friend. Damon was a talented chef who owned his own restaurant at one point. His friends knew him as a sweet, likable guy that people could depend on. But after Pat disappeared, Damon's personality changed drastically. He was very upset by what happened to Pat which on some level makes sense, but it would be no doubt upsetting if your best friend's brother went missing and then passed away like that. But Damon was upset to the point that seemed abnormal, especially given the fact that they had never been super close. Even Gray found it odd. He said that in the days after Patrick's death, Damon would burst into tears randomly and then start sobbing uncontrollably. Which is weird considering, yes, they knew each other, but they weren't like best buddies. It's just odd. Damon also told Jill that he would go and look out over the Manatee River and just sob for hours. 
and he started going off the rails, according to Stephen Covey, one of the Mullins family friends. He would constantly ask weird questions like, if something happened, would you still be my friend? And can I count on you being there? Sound like very yeah. guilty, suspicious questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Plus, this is even weirder. Every January around the anniversary of Pat's death, Damon would have a mental breakdown. Friends and family thought it was pretty eerie the way that these breakdowns would strike at the same time, like clockwork, every year in January. Damon also started to use crystal meth. He was getting increasingly paranoid and impulsive and had bouts of extremely erratic behavior. And people started to get pretty worried. Are these symptoms of guilt? Seems that way. Yeah, it does because it's interesting. I, ju- I just covered a case on, on Lights Out about a killer who murdered this young girl when he was like oh, 16. Yeah. You were telling me about this. And it's a similar situation. He lived in like the neighborhood, like not far from where Carrie lived. But after she died, he like became good family friends with them. He'd like sit at the family dinners with them. And he would like have all these guilty thoughts coming out. And he kept all this quiet for 30 years until he finally just got, you know, I mean, there was other reasons we think for why he finally confessed to the crime, but it was the same type of thing. It was like every anniversary he was upset. He would, he would actually go to where um, he had buried her in the backyard and like pray at, at the, the spot. And he would just do all these things and say little things just like this. Yep. And I mean, for me, I'm just like, I'm drawing the parallels there and it just seems very much like guilty yeah. symptoms. I've covered several cases that this reminds me of. I think the guilt just has to start really getting to you. Yeah. I well, can't imagine. And the drug usage to mm-hmm. escape yeah. your thoughts, right? And there's a good chance in the other case it could have started before then too. But he yeah. was a alcoholic and Mm-hmm. drug user as well so mm. and the mullins family usually held a get-together over memorial day weekend and this included memorial day 2013 a few months after patrick died and damon came to this 2013 get together and that's when miles saw damon exhibiting some truly bizarre behavior damon tied a rope around his dog and then tied the other end of the rope around himself but the strangest thing was that damon had tied the rope in the same way that the rope had been tied around pat's body that is yeah pretty damning if you ask me. that is especially because it was an unusual way of tying this rope obviously family and friends were highly disturbed by this incident and they confronted him about it but he didn't really give an explanation for his actions so it should come as no surprise that people started to think that damon knew more about pat's death than he was letting on Damon was actually interviewed by police multiple times. In December of 2013, Damon was charged with simple battery, but these charges were dropped and the case was closed. Then there was the issue of the smudges on Pat's stump knocker. These were red paint smudges that likely came from Pat's boat scraping up against another boat. So obviously the family was very interested in finding out where those scratches came from. All of the even-numbered buoys in the Egmont Channel area were painted red. Keep in mind, Pat's boat was found near Egmont Key. But interestingly enough, Damon's boat actually had a big painted red stripe on the side. So the family had to wonder whether or not Pat's boat scraped up with Damon's boat. 
and that the smudges were from his paint. Damon lived on the Manatee River where he would put his boat in. The spot was close to the opening into the Tampa Bay, and this was the area where Pat's body was found. The police were now pretty interested in examining the boat. They made a request to Damon to allow them to have the boat tested, but he declined. And eventually after this, he stopped talking to the police completely. And I think that tells you guilty, a lot, guilty, guilty. especially as yeah. this this friend who is so upset that they're sobbing. You think you'd do absolutely anything right. to assist the police in getting this solved. So, And the investigation into him didn't really get much further. Without any witnesses or direct evidence, the police couldn't really do much. But the police dropped the ball on investigating as time went on. The family began to feel very frustrated by their lack of investigation. So they felt the need to take matters into their own hands. And luckily, they were able to hire private investigators to look into Pat's death. And here are some of the things that they found. During their investigation, the sheriff's office never checked Damon's boat using luminol. And luminol testing obviously could have picked up blood or gunshot residue in the boat, including blood or GSR that was cleaned up. After nine years, the family was finally able to have Damon's boat tested, but there was no residue found. And again, they weren't able to test the boat until a whole nine years after Pat had died. And during that time, Damon had actually sunk the boat multiple times, and he also removed and replaced all the hardware. Damon's boat had also been kept outside for many years, so you have to factor in where and all that rain, wind, and weather over time. All of these things probably washed away any sort of residue that could have still been there nine years later. The family wished police would have tested it back then. Of course, maybe they would have found important evidence if they had, but they didn't. And as time went on, the family heard less and less about Pat's case, and they still had no answers. Here's Jill talking about the case five years later. He would be retired now. He was looking forward to retirement to start a new vocation. Um, he wanted to be a grandfather so much, and our first grandchild is due in the next couple weeks. It was just just the beginning of what was a real nightmare, trying to learn what happened to him. When you find someone tied in the anchor rope and with a gunshot wound to the side of their face, which they could not physically do, and it's not classified a homicide, that's beyond my comprehension. He contacted me once in December and told me he was going to thoroughly review the file and he and I would meet in January. So we're getting towards the end of January. I hope that this will happen. Pat's death is not solved. Pat's homicide is not solved. And we need that to be done. I just feel so bad for her after being married to Pat for so long and to have him die in such a horrific way and then have no answers as to what happened that would just be torture i, I really can't imagine and with very that. little communication from the police yeah. on what's going on she she holds such composure for everything that she has been through i mean all her interviews are very poised considering but despite all of the hardship and heartache that jill and her family had been through in 2015 things started to look up a little bit for Jill when she began dating a retired man named Mike. They got engaged around the beginning of 2017, and he was very supportive of her efforts to get justice for Pat. And he even went out and helped put up flyers around the community. I think Pat's the kind of guy who would have been very happy to know that his wife was able to find love again and, yeah. and not be alone. Absolutely. Jill put her house in Bradenton on the market around this time, but she planned to stay in the area. 
The house, as you can imagine, just had too many memories that kept her up at night. Damon Presswood died of a likely meth overdose on April 5th, 2017. He was 48 years old. After he died, his daughter allowed the police to finally test the paint chips from his boat. So the lab compared these paint chips to the red paint scratches found on Pat's boat. And surprise, surprise, the two samples were a match. But what's crazy is that the police told the Mullins family that the paint match wasn't anything important. What? Well, yeah. What is, what? I don't even know what to say. Because they said, unbelievable. So the, the police were like, well, the lab report states that Damon's boat couldn't be ruled out as a possible source of the paint scratches on Pat's boat. But they said that this red paint was a common variety and they couldn't tell the brand or anything like that. So it could have just been like, okay. I guess, a coincidence that they matched. Obviously, the family doesn't agree with the police. They think that the paint smears are a significant piece of evidence. They think Damon might know or might have known what had happened to Pat. And sadly, Pat missed a lot after he died. Both of his sons have gotten married and one of Pat's grandchildren has also been born. His sons and their families are thriving and Jill is very proud of them and she knows Pat would have been too. Pat should be enjoying his retirement today. He should be spending time with his grandchildren like he had always dreamed, being the grandpa that he was so excited to become. He would be watching over his students as they graduate. He would be spending sunny days fishing on the Braden River. Their family is still pushing for answers, even though the investigation has been stalled. No arrests in the case have been made, and some tips did come in as a result of the Unsolved Mysteries episode that was done on this case. In 2020, Jill and her lawyer were able to get the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to reclassify Pat's case as a homicide. But the family has said that due to the way things work at the sheriff's office, they feel like the case is stuck in the same place that it was 10 years ago. Many officers have told them that the case is open, but it's inactive. Pat's loved ones still feel his loss very deeply. The community lost a beloved teacher and friend, and the family lost a beloved brother, husband, and father. They just want whoever took Pat away from them and him from his family to be brought to justice. Here's Jill recalling some of the fond memories of her husband, Patrick Lee Mullins. We carved pumpkins. We had Christmas trees when we were in college. Uh, we lived in the same complex. And, uh, and uh, Pat roomed with his brother and... And uh, so our, we'd get together a lot. Uh, um, the wedding was uh, pretty cool. We actually bought our house before we got married, and uh, Pat's family had fun uh, decorating the house. And uh, uh, so when we came back from our honeymoon to actually move in, it was it was pretty cool. They they. Um, they're very supportive of us, and he did a lot of good things. And looking at this, he was in church quartet and barbershop quartet and served in the National Guard. Um, he um, loved teaching kids. God, it's just so upsetting. What a loss of a remarkable person. And to just have no answers, it's, it's just terrible. So if you have any information on the death of Patrick Lee Mullins, please contact 941-705-8575 or email Pat Mullins Memorial Fund 
at gmail.com. Anyone who has information on the Pat Mullins case or any Manatee County case can contact the Sheriff's Office at 941-747-3011. Manatee County Crime Stoppers can also be reached by calling 941-866-8477 or going online at manateecrimestoppers.com. I also believe the family is offering a $20,000 reward uh, to whoever brings a tip that ultimately leads in an arrest as well. So they are very much, you know, actively seeking hopefully credible tips to try and figure out exactly what happened. So that kind of leads us to our final thoughts and theories. And with this one, I mean, there's only really two or three theories that Mm -hmm. are plausible. I think the first one that's out there that by all accounts and evidence that we've just went through doesn't seem even possible and that's suicide but i guess there's always still a chance that that is possible but i don't tend to to lean towards that one at all based on what we know mm-hmm. it just for, doesn't really seem possible for that to have happened the way that no they say it did no especially the toe theory that is so bizarre to me of uh, i don't know I think of all of the evidence that points to that not being the case. It's the blood spatter, though, that really gets me. There would have been some trace of blood, brain matter, something in that boat. That does not add up whatsoever. Also, thinking about the wound being open, obviously tons of blood is going to get into the water. That would have attracted sharks, alligators, fish, whatever. And for there to be no sign his body was completely intact, in perfect condition that, so that is, does not add up that insinuates that he may have been somewhere you know he was killed somewhere else clearly and then somebody later on then put him in the water because again they're estimating that he was in the water eight or nine days or whatever based on the decomposition but it's hard to believe that with such a you know horrific wound a traumatic wound where there would have been a bunch of blood there would have absolutely been scavengers that would have picked his body apart over that nine day period mm-hmm. i mean there's tons of fish there's sharks there's all sorts of other scavengers turtles and everything else that would go for all that and again he you know the face area was completely gone mm-hmm. but that was likely due to the Just, shotgun wound to the face yeah and then subsequent decomposing in the water afterwards but it seems to me that he was killed somewhere else and then somebody then took him out there let his boat go and drift and then dropped him into the water or he was killed on someone else's boat yeah or on somebody else's boat yeah Mm -hmm. yeah one of the things i was thinking about that also just i feel like proves that this was not a suicide was because he went to that farm store and was like buying all that stuff and he was even buying the goggles that he wasn't even, he had no reason to use them yet. It was just, he knew that eventually in the future, he would want to have them on hand for some you know, future project. And so um, his son, Miles, actually you know, brought that up and was like, this shows he had plans. And if he was going to go mm-hmm. and commit murder or commit suicide, why would he do all these unrelated shopping errands right before? Right. Yeah, you know, it doesn't, really doesn't really add up. And even if it was a last minute thing, where would he have gotten the gun? Right. Last minute. Yeah, the gun is the other mystery to this when it comes to the suicide theory, which I'm surprised the 
police department hasn't completely walked back at this point like oh well we never found evidence that he purchased a gun anywhere so where did he get the gun from right he just randomly came across a shotgun to use in his suicide that day Mm -hmm. i'm just shocked that the police department's not being more cooperative and trying to fix this and Mm -hmm. because they clearly fucked this up royally and if that's really what's going on that the police department's like oh well we screwed this up from the jump and now we look bad if we Oh, that's totally part of what's going if on. If we we see that all the time, you know, they'd have to admit are accountable to how for bad our mistake. Suck. Yeah, it's just like why though? Like you're 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 a public servant. You're here to work for the public. Like who cares about your ego or your reputation? Like at this point, you're trying. We're trying to solve a murder here. Mm-hmm. That's like, how it get should over be. It. Yeah, but reality is, people care about their egos. Ugh. It's it's sickening. a lot of people are in this for the wrong reasons. Is that what we're learning? That's what we're learning again. Well, nobody wants to look bad right. in law enforcement, it seems. Like nobody wants to mm-hmm. be the fall guy or admit that they they messed up. And like I mentioned, the investigator on this case, I believe it was their first death investigation. Yep, it was. So they didn't even know where to start, how to do this. Which is interesting because Bradenton, just as a area or a town in Florida, its crime rates are 14% higher than national average and violent crimes in Bradenton or this area really? are 30% higher than the national average. So you would think they'd have a lot of experience in this and sort of investigation. Where they're spread thin. Yeah. And there's um, known drug trafficking and like moving drugs around in this area, especially on the river. Damon was on drugs. Like, was he on the river? Mm-hmm. Did it, did that? Like, there's a whole, you know, theory about how if he was on drugs and Maybe he was on the river. Could he have been doing some type of like deal or was he doing drugs? And then somehow Pat came across him and came in contact with him. Damon freaked out or went into psychosis and like killed him mm-hmm. on accident, maybe. And like didn't really process like what process he was what he was doing. Yeah. And then which would explain why the fact that he's like freaking out every single um, time that there, he's around the family and is sobbing hysterically and is doing that thing with his dog, like tying up the dog or whatever. Yeah. And in the same way. Right. And then I was on um, Reddit and there was this whole post from this person. I It's hard because I can't. He, this person didn't leave any resources, but I think it's still or sources, but I think it's still worth mentioning a few things. Mm. First off. Um, he, Damon did have a history of violence. I know that we had mentioned that back in 2013, he was charged with simple battery, but these charges were dropped and the case was closed. But this person on Reddit also mentions that in 2013, which I don't know if this is the same, same scenario, but I'm kind of assuming it is that that incident was actually a domestic battery arrest mentioned, um, about his boyfriend that he had. Right. Which is interesting. Like, it's kind of seemed like maybe he didn't, he wasn't like fully out. I don't know if like that plays a part in it. Again, I'm just speculating. Yeah. And like I said, there's no sources here, so it's hard. But they also say that, um, and then in 20 or 2002, his wife had to get a domestic violence injunction against him. And I'm wondering if police ever like followed up on that and asked like what really happened or if. You know, they ever saw a gun or, you know, yeah, anything like not. that. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. And then this is really interesting, which, again, I tried really hard to figure out 
where this is coming from, but this person is talking about clues on Facebook. And I actually found Patrick's Facebook. And I think the settings have since been changed. So you can't like go on there. But there's been several posts um, that he posts, like, for example, two on the two year anniversary of Patrick being last seen. um, Damon posted a video slash meme of a dog in the mud, which was a repost by someone from 2012. And this is a very random thing to do, but kind of matches the whole dog in the mud thing before. Um, Two years from when the body was found, he posted a song titled Blame. And the lyrics are, guilt is burning inside, I'm hurting. This ain't a feeling I can keep. So blame it on the night. Don't blame it on me. Don't blame it on me. Blame it on the night. Oh, I'm sorry. So sorry, baby. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, there's like... That is interesting. Obviously, yeah, this is all right. unconfirmed stuff, but it's it's kind of interesting. If it is true, know. then it's. I, I just know. felt like it's it was at least suspicious. bringing worth bringing it up. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think it's pretty obviously. I mean, the guilt was clearly getting to him to have these mental breakdowns yeah. every January. That's what I go back to, and just from what I've seen other cases like this, is that mm-hmm. to have all of these things that point to him. To have him say how he sobs over the river, he's just heartbroken over the loss of Pat, who he wasn't even that close with. Yeah. And then refused to cooperate with police. Doesn't add up. Although people have theorized that Pat and Damon had like some sort of relationship. I don't know if there's like anything. I've I've read that on a few places. Definitely. Definitely. Super speculation. We don't want to spread that for sure. But I mean... Anything is possible. Because, I mean, you got to think about... So, if Damon is the one responsible for Pat's death, what's the motive there? Mm-hmm. Is it Damon was out on his boat doing drugs or whatever, moving drugs, and... Or, you know, he would look stranded and he went over there and... Pat you know, gets on his Pat boat. Pat gets on his boat, which would explain the scraping of, of the boats. Mm-hmm. And... Something goes wrong on the boat for some reason, whether it has something to do with, you know, they have some secret thing going on or there's, yeah, or, or they're doing, yeah, they're doing some drug transaction or something. I don't know. Like I go back to, this is just such a brutal murder, like to, to take a shotgun and essentially, you know, take someone's head off with that at that close. Like that is just such a, and, and, and I guess if you're on meth or you're not in the right frame of mind and anything is possible, but I, I kind of go to the possibility of maybe it wasn't Damon or maybe Damon saw or maybe it wasn't Damon himself who did it, but maybe right. Damon feels guilty because he didn't do anything to stop something from happening. And he just knows about it. He knows right. if he were to say something, he know- his life would be at risk. Exactly. Like he might be on the line. Maybe it was Damon's friends or people he associates with in the drug world or something like mm-hmm. that, that something went really wrong and and Pat just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when something was going down. And Damon lives with the guilt of I didn't do enough to stop him from being murdered. Cause it, to me, this, this is like s- super brutal and yeah, makes me think this is some sort of gang or cartel or something like that. Like this is just, it, it, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm blown away at the brutality of it, of the, and then tying him up. Like yeah. with Damon, like obviously we don't know that much about Damon and but from what we do know he was like a family friend and stuff so you got to think about if you were to create like a a criminal profile for him would he fit 
the profile of somebody capable of doing a heinous murder like this and then tying a rope around somebody and dropping an anchor and full well knowing that this is your friend's family, your friend's brother who is being taken away from them and just allowing all this to happen or going through with these actions. I, I, I don't know. And that's what's, that's where I kind of pause to think as much as Damon looks like the guy he looks like the suspect here and potentially the murderer. Maybe he is. I just don't know if he is capable of, of doing something like this and then doing all the subsequent steps to get rid of the evidence. The and, theory that he was with other people that did this and yeah. he witnessed something or maybe helped because he was forced to is interesting and would definitely explain a lot of his guilt still and him not, even though he feels so guilty not ever confessing because his own life or his family's safety could be on the line. Yeah. Well, cause it's, it's like, so on this river, there's all these little inlet areas. There'd be great areas to go and meet up totally. with people and do drugs. And if you were going to go do meth or something or like go to a secluded deal, area deal to, or yeah. deal or traffic or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can total, like, obviously we don't know anything and this is all purely speculation. I, I don't think you can rule out the possibility of, Patrick was a very low-key, private guy. He was very, like, you know, really kind of just kept to himself and very, yeah, not, I don't know if secretive is the right word, but maybe he, maybe sometimes people have double lives going on. Sometimes well, people have I th- things I don't know. going on. I think that's but, a stretch because I feel there would have been some evidence of that. Right, it would be very right. hard to keep, if he had some big secret going on or some, something that he was dealing with in his life, it would be hard. probably would have found right. evidence for that. Yeah. Right. So I don't think, personally, I don't believe that there was some like relationship going on or some secret thing. I think this was a case of wrong place, wrong, wrong. time. Yeah. And just happened to run into the wrong people yeah. who are capable of committing heinous murders. It's just so sad, man. God, I can't imagine so, how like all his students feel and everything. Because like, if Damon didn't do it, then the person who did do it is potentially still out there. Yeah. And it seems like the family tends to lean towards it wasn't necessarily Damon who did it and all hope is lost now that Damon is deceased. But in fact, and like we just heard in that clip, there's a dangerous individual out there. Well, chances are, even if it was yet. Damon involved, it he probably didn't act alone, right? It'd be pretty hard be, to tie up an adult and yeah. Well, I guess he could have done. It's possible. He probably did all that but, afterwards. Definitely possible. Unlikely though. But yeah. how did you do it with no blood anywhere? Right. That's what bothers me. Because even if you're like, okay, they were on the boat, had an altercation, whatever. He shoots him and then ties him up and throws him overboard. So that's just you were able to shoot him in the head and have no blood anywhere. Well, we don't know if there was blood in Damon's boat because they never did the luminol testing. Yeah, and he That's, had days to get things cleaned up and disposed of. He sunk of the boat and, multiple times. Yeah. He got rid of all the hardware. Still. I know. It's I, like you think someone would have seen the boat in the aftermath. Right. Someone in the family or, but I don't know. It's possible he could have concealed all of that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really tough. Cause I think we can all agree that. Pat did not shoot himself on his boat. No. And especially not with his fucking toe. The fact that that theory's even come up is so bizarre to me. No. I just can't believe the police like went so hard down that 
Well, that's Roads the of... problem when they come into these cases and they have a theory already in their minds and then they just pull evidence and put things together in a way that fits yeah. their narrative. Yep, yep. It's bullshit. Rather than seeking the truth is what they're supposed to be doing. And salt in... It's scary because it's like how many murderers are just running around out there yeah. who've never been caught because the police oh, so many. don't know what they're... So many. don't know what they're doing or don't have the resources to investigate these cases adequately. Like I've said again and again, cases like this should scare you. If something ever happens to you or someone you love, you might be dealing with bad police. And that is a reality that we all have to, to face, that our cases may not be fully investigated properly. Or at it, all. Yeah. Or, or at, at all. all. And you might have to take the matters into your own hands and That's do your own investigation. Any of us could be the Mullins family. Yeah. And you I, see I it happen way, so bad way them. too often. Yep. Especially All for this day and age. It's, Endless it's really cases. Unfortunate. It's, yeah. It's very frustrating. But we definitely want to hear your thoughts on this one, guys. Let us know what theory makes the most sense to you. What doesn't make sense to you here? I'd like to hear that. And if you lean towards Damon or someone else or Damon and someone else, or maybe you lean towards a suicide theory. If you do, I'd like to hear why. But that is going to be it for us this week, guys. We'll, we will be back next week, of course. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. <laughs>